Good morning. Um, well, last week at this time, those of us who were here uh, for the celebration were trying very hard to stay focused on Steve Thomas's message, um, because for many of us, probably, our thoughts were drifting somewhat, probably hoping he wouldn't speak too long, um, because we really didn't want to miss that, did we? Um, Andy Murray's fabulous victory last week. Um, I just thought it was fascinating. Did you notice all those significance of seven? You know, he, uh, he won on uh, the date was 7-7, seven, seven, 77 years after Fred Perry won and the last woman won in 77, all of which goes to prove very little. <laughs> but... Um, we're really pleased he got there, aren't we? Now, why did he get there? He got there, well, for a whole number of reasons. You know, hard work, uh, pushy mum. Ooh, who said that? Um, he got there for a whole number of reasons. But one of the things that definitely got him there at the end was that word. Motivation. That sort of inner drive to keep going when you didn't make it and to keep pressing through when you were questioning why am I in this thing at all. And it's actually motivation that I've been asked to speak about this morning in our series on prophecy. Um, If you're visiting us, let me just set in context. We do actually believe as a church that God still speaks to people. Amen? God is not deaf or dead or dumb. In fact, one of the things that marks God out in the Bible in contrast to the multitude of gods that there existed in the ancient world was that our God is a God who speaks. That's what we find him doing right at the beginning of the Bible, at creation, and God said, let there be light. Light be, literally, and light was. God is a God who speaks. In fact, the taunt of the Old Testament prophets to... People who followed other religions about their idols was that they have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak. What God you lot have got? He can't even speak. And we believe that God still speaks today. Yes, he speaks first and foremost through the Bible, through his word where his timeless truths are enshrined. But he also speaks prophetically. And as Steve Jones outlined when we first started this series, that is through stirring people's hearts to bring a word directly from God that's not of their imagination or creation. It wasn't there one moment. It was there the next, either in verbal or picture form, and to share that for the encouragement of others. Now, what we want to look at this morning is the prophet's motivation. That's what I've been asked to speak on today. What should be our motivation for wanting to prophesy? Well, again, in Bible times, there were all sorts of motivations for people prophesying. Old Testament prophets weren't unique in their ministry. Some of the other religions of the ancient world had their sort of prophets, go-betweens. In fact, a whole number of them are referred to in the Bible. They're not approved of, but they're mentioned just as part of history that was going on. Uh, Here's a list of them. 
Ecstatics, diviners, clairvoyants, mediums, astrologers, sorcerers, spellcasters, magicians, dream interpreters, enchanters, and soothsayers. It's a whole bunch. And the Bible encourages us to have nothing to do with all of that stuff, by the way. But it was a world that was full of go-betweens. A world that was full of, of people trying to provide a bridge across between us and between, in their case, the gods. Uh, but their motives weren't always very admirable. Uh, fell into two categories. It, it was to do with either trying to win the gods' favor. If only you could win the gods' favor by maybe offering the right sacrifice or doing the right thing, then the gods would respond and give you what you were hoping for or at the very least wouldn't strike you with thunder and lightning that day. So it was either trying to win the gods' favor or trying to win people's favor. If I give the king a good word, this will go well for me. There's actually a couple of examples of false prophets in the Bible Seeking to do that, trying to give the king the advice he thought that they wanted. And it all came to a very, very sad end. So, trying to win the God's favor, trying to get something for yourself, either from heaven or from earth, is really what summed up a lot of stuff that was going on in Bible times. Trying to get something for yourself. And what we want to look at this morning is, so what should our motivation be in sharing prophetic encouragement, sharing words, even sharing scripture with one another? Why should we do this? What's it all about? Well, it's certainly not either of these two, trying to get something for ourselves. Um, And I want to sum it up with two simple things this morning. What's the right motivation for prophecy? got two things and the first one is the glory of God and the first and most fundamental motivation of prophecy has nothing to do with us it's really all about God and his glory and I want to start in some different scriptures but we'll get to 1 Corinthians 13 that Jeremy mentioned I just want to go on a chapter first of all to 1 Corinthians 14 And verses 24 to 25. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul is explaining to the Corinthian church how they should use prophecy and other gifts of the Holy Spirit in their meetings, which had got a bit out of kilter in their case. And he's trying to not stop them at all, but say, well, guys, let's let's bring a bit of direction and shape and order to this. And in this particular section, he's talking about prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpretation. But at verse 24, he says this, if an unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand comes in while everyone's prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And so he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So here's the first motivation that we should have for wanting to share any gift of the Holy Spirit, let alone prophecy with other people. And that is that 
we should want to see God's glory manifested. It's about bringing glory to God, not to me. So Paul's envisaging the church at worship here, using the Holy Spirit. He's envisaging someone's come into the meeting that morning who's not a Christian, who doesn't quite understand who Jesus is yet and what he's done for us. And he hears a prophetic word. Now, we're not told what kind. Was it a personal word for him about his situation? Was it something wider? We're not told. But he hears this word and suddenly... He knows that God is real and God is there and he falls on his face and he worships God. That's the first motivation of prophecy. Our heart should be that out of what we bring, God gets glory. And people turn to God and say, thank you, God. So it's all about him and not about us. I don't know about you, but I think we need a bit more of that in our time today, don't you? We live in a culture which, by and large, um, has now probably moved beyond neglected God to rejected God, in which they think God isn't real, and even if he is real, he doesn't make any difference, and words alone are just not going to get there. People today need to encounter God in some tangible way that will stop them and make them think, whoa, what was that? And that's one of the things that prophecy can do. It can make people think, how do you know that? Who told you that? Who have you been talking to? (laughs) God. Who? So that the purpose is that people who don't know him as well as those who do know him, fall on their face and say, God, you are magnificent. So passion for the glory of God, passion for God being seen for who he is should be our first motivation. And this passion for the glory of God was really a major theme in the Old Testament prophets. One of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament was Moses. Now, we don't often think of him as a prophet, but that's how he's referred to in Scripture itself. Moses was one of the greatest prophets of all. He was a guy who was passionate about people seeing God's glory, people seeing God for who he really was. And one of those occasions when he went up Mount Sinai to get the law, and by the way, he didn't just go up once. If you read the text, he went up seven times. Must have been hard work for an 80-year-old, which is how old he was at the time. He was up and down, taking and bringing messages backwards and forwards. And on one of those trips up in Exodus 33, 18, he calls out, Now, Lord, show me your glory. Of all the things I could ask to see, Lord, what I long for is what Steve was talking about in the celebration last week. God's glory. And in the Exodus and wilderness story, one of the things we find is that the glory of God again and again is not just something out there, but it's something that can be right down here and that we can encounter and find ourselves transformed by. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 23 to 24. Moses is talking to 
the people of Israel, just before they're about to go into the promised land, he won't be going with them. Deuteronomy 5, 23 and 24, he's reminding them that when you heard the voice, here you are again, a God who speaks, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. And we've heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now should we die? This great fire will consume us. And we'll die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. Wow, that must be really a powerful experience. If you say, well, we can't cope with this anymore. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking as out of the fire as we have and survived. So they're looking back there and seeing clearly that hearing the voice of God, hearing God speak was associated with God's glory being manifested. And there were other prophets in the Old Testament as well who linked very much their speaking with the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 uh, narrates for us his vision that led to his call. And he sees himself suddenly in the temple of God in heaven and the glorious splendor of it and all the angels round about. And what does he hear them singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who can finish the verse for me. The whole, go on, you know it, the whole earth is full of his glory. See, this is what grabbed him. He saw the glory of God, this overwhelming weight of the presence of God, as Steve summed it up last week in the celebration. This overwhelming sense that God is real, God is here, God is wonderful. And that's worth telling people about. That was his motivation. He was gripped with knowing that God was real, God is here, God is wonderful. And I want people to hear what he's got to say to them. Ezekiel was the same in chapter 1. He has this fabulous vision of God's throne and it's exactly the same, a vision of glory that leads him to, to start speaking about God and what he wants to do. They longed that others would see this. So, we need to start here. Prophecy, first of all, if we are going to prophesy, if we're going to use any spiritual gift, if we're going to share something from God, it is not about us. It's not about us getting something out of it. It's not about us feeling good. It's not about us keeping a tally. Oh, that's 321 led to Jesus now. Who cares? And if we find ourselves keeping tallies, there's something seriously wrong because the glory's coming to us and it's not going to God. So, what's the right motivation? Number one, that was nearly very good. We could try again. What's the right motivation for prophecy? Number one, just want to know you've got it. Here's the second one. Because it's not only got that vertical dimension, it also has a horizontal dimension. And the second dimension is the good of others, the glory of God 
and the good of others, vertical and horizontal. The good of others, not the good of ourselves. Now, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13, which is where we'll come to. When I first became a Christian, I have to say, I never understood why 1 Corinthians 13 was between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, other than that one was 12 and one was 14 and 13 comes in between. Because many of you will know that it sort of it seems an odd intrusion. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation, healing, words of knowledge, these kind of things, how they should be used in the church life. And then suddenly it's almost as if he breaks off and, and, and starts talking about love in the middle of it and then goes back to it again. And I never understood that when I first became a Christian. thought, well, maybe the passage got dislocated. Well, it hasn't. And the longer I've been a pastor, the more I've seen Paul was absolutely right to put this here right in the middle of talking about how we use gifts. So why don't we read our main passage for this morning? If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 would be a good place to turn to, whether in paper form or on your iPhone. Just don't look at Facebook at the same time. I know if you are. Okay. 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, we'll end, we'll start rather with the ending of the previous chapter. He's just talked about all these gifts at use in the church and then says, now I'll show you the most excellent way. You know, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Oh, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, and he's thinking there of the perfection that will come when Jesus returns, then the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then 
we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Just wanted to read that last verse. The chapter divisions, remember, weren't there in the Bible originally, added much later to help us find our way around. So Paul's not setting up an either or here. He's not saying, look, you've either got to choose love or you've got to choose the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's saying both need to be there in the believer's life. So what is he saying in chapter 13? Well, he's saying that without love, without the Greek word, some of you will know, is agape. Agape is selfless love, thinking about others' first love. Commitment love, love that doesn't count the cost. Without that kind of love, even the most stunning gifts of the Holy Spirit, do you know what? They're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, and the Corinthians knew all about those. The pagan temples that they would have known before they'd become followers of Jesus uh, were full of gongs and symbols and, you know, they'd be clanging and clashing and he's referring to that. He said, you, it's a way of saying, you might as well go back to your old pagan religion. Because without love, without, and again, let me widen this beyond prophecy. Prophecy, serving, words and knowledge, serving the coffee, handing out the leaflets, whatever it might be, without love, it's just a whole bunch of noise, Paul's saying. It's all about the good of others. So Paul unpacks in this passage what being loving means. And the thing is, most of us hear this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, out of context. Where do most of us generally hear this passage read? Weddings, that's right. How many have heard 1 Corinthians 13, read at weddings? Yeah, a whole bunch of us there. It's the wedding passage. You know, if in doubt, you don't know what to speak. 1 Corinthians 13 is always a good one, isn't it? It's the wedding passage. No, it's not. It's got nothing to do with weddings. It's got everything to do with how we behave towards one another and those outside when we use these gifts that God has given us. That's his context. Paul's saying when you prophesy, when you pray, when you serve in the kitchen at the end of the meeting, when you serve by clearing up the mess, whatever the gift is, when you serve, the motivation needs to be, yeah, the glory of God, but second, the good of others. I'm doing this not so people say, That was a really good word. Really, really appreciated the coffee this morning. It just had got that little bit of extra. Hey, by the way, it's still good to say thank you to people. Let's not stop doing that. But I use those gifts not so that I feel good, 
but so that others get God's goodness. It's for their good, it's not for mine. That's what agape love is. This is how we should use prophecy, it's how we should use gifts. Why don't we just unpack those words? where he defines what love is. Love is, this is verse 4 onwards if you're following in the text, and I'm just pulling the words out of verses 4 to 7 here. Love is patient. The Greek word there means patient with people. Funny, isn't it? It's sometimes easier to be patient with things than with people. He's saying don't get irritated. When people don't instantly say, oh yes, John McCobb, thank you. That was a wonderful word. Really got to my, oh yes, I've got it, I see it. They might say, hmm, I'll think about that. And Joe's still going to be kind. And he's going to be patient and not think, well come on. Doesn't he know I've got a good gift of prophecy? I mean, what's the point? You know, and and I said at the start of my word, I really, really, really know that this is from God. How many of us have ever done that? Don't put your hands up. Just inside will do. Don't do it. Okay, I know sometimes we're trying to do it and saying, I really feel this is from God. Listen, there's one person who decides whether the word is from God or not, and that's the person you're giving it to or the church you're giving it to. And if it's from God, they'll really, really know. You don't need to hammer away at it. So Paul says, come on, guys, I want you to be patient. And that means people might not respond instantly to whatever gift it is, prophecy, we're thinking about today, but we can widen it. I want you to be patient. I want you to be kind. Just think about that in prophecy. I want you to be kind. So if I've got a word for Joe McCobb, and it might just be a little bit... Ch- Sorry, you just happened to be there, Joe, this morning. But I have got a word. No, I haven't. Um, you know, maybe it's a bit of a challenging word I've got for Joe. And the more challenging it is, the kinder I need to be in how I deliver it. Be patient, be kind. If it's God's word, God's Holy Spirit can do the work without our human energy. Patient, kind, no envy in shaping what we bring. He says it doesn't envy. No shaping of the word so it comes out better for me than for them or I want to calm it down a bit because, you know, God says, Joe... God's going to give you £100,000 this week, but, you know, I think, well, it'd be nice if 20 of it came to me. No boasting, he says, when the work came true. I thank you. No pride. The Greek word there means don't get puffed up. We'd say, don't get an inflated view of yourself. You know, if God uses you in prophecy or anything else, and someone says thank you, receive their thanks and say thanks for saying that. But don't get an inflated view of yourself. No 
Rudeness, he said. I think we might say bluntness. No bluntness. Even if it's a hard word, you can be gracious and courteous in how you bring it. There should be nothing self-seeking about it, he says. Said we shouldn't get angry. The Greek word there really means touchy. Don't get touchy if you deliver a prophetic gift and maybe someone doesn't instantly respond. Don't get touchy. Trust God. Don't keep lists of wrongs. God gives me a word for Job, but I'm jolly well not going to give it because the last time I gave three words to him, he didn't listen and I'm not doing it again. Don't keep lists for good or bad. Don't delight in things going bad, Paul says. Rather rejoice in the truth. Look to protect, he says in those verses. Trust God. Pray over things for people. Keep in hope. Keep in perseverance and just don't give in. All of those things that he says there in those few verses. So prophecy will always be for the good of others, not for the good of me. Always for their sake, not for my sake. Always to bring 1 Corinthians 14.3, which I'm sure has come out many times in this series. Prophecy is about bringing edification, exhortation, and encouragement. By the way, don't write yourself off prophetically if you think, yeah, but you know, my prophetic words aren't very good, you know, um, I listened to Jeremy giving a word and, you know, he's, he seems to have got directional words, knows what's going to happen next. Well, do you know what? God does that sometimes. But actually, the basic function of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14.3, is edification, exhortation, encouragement. That's really, primarily, what prophecy is about. And if what you've got will do that for someone, then please share it with them. Okay, so prophecy for the glory of God, for the good of others. And this was the sort of prophet that Moses had been and the sort of prophet that he longed for God to raise up in the future. Deuteronomy 18. Verse... 14 says, the nations that you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you, like me, from among your brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord, etc. A prophet like me, he says there. Well, we know Moses wasn't perfect, far from it. So it doesn't mean we have to be perfect before we can bring prophecy to glorify God and for the good of others. But he's a pretty good model. A prophet like me, in what way? In a sense of the intimacy of relationship. Here's just three quick verses from one of those times he's up the mountain. Exodus 33 and verse 11 says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face 
as a man speaks with his friend. That should be our longing. Lord, I want that intimate relationship with you that will let me hear you speaking with clarity so I can share this in a way that will glorify you and be for the good of others. Second, and a desire to know God better. Verse 13, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Verse 18, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. A desire to know God better um, needs to lie at the heart of all that we do. And third, a care for God's people in Exodus 32 and verse 32, when Moses had come down from the mountain and found people had made this golden calf and were turning away from God. Moses says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sins. And if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. What a care for people there. Lord, I'd rather they were blessed and I wasn't. So here's a guy who is very much like what we've been looking at, a guy who wanted to ensure that it was always for the glory of God and for the good of people. So as we finish then, how do we become that sort of prophet, the sort who longs to bring God's word for God's glory and the good of God's people? Well, I think we can find a clue even in the word prophet itself. Now, there are three major terms for prophet in the Old Testament, and you saw two of them in your first talk in this series. I know that because I happen to be here for that one. So, three major terms for prophet in the Old Testament. I'll tell you what, we'll read this passage first, and then I want to highlight them Tell us what that means for today, and then we're done. So I'm going to read a story from 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, which is to do with the anointing of Israel's first king, Saul, by the prophet Samuel. Now, there was a Benjamite, a man, stand, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphir of Benjamin. And he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now, the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, "'Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys.'" So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and ran the area, ran Shalisha, but they didn't find them. And they went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys weren't there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but didn't find them. And when they reached the district of Zoph, and you can imagine how the guy was feeling about these blessed donkeys by now, can't you? That's the quick version of the story there. But I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, by now, stupid donkeys. When they reached the district of Zoph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come on, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. 
But the servant replied, look, in this town there's a man of God. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. So let's go there now. Perhaps he'll tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, if we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We've got no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, look, I've got a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God so he'll tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he'd say, come, let's go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come on then, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. And if you want to know what happened to the donkeys, you'll have to read it yourself later. Now, in that short passage, there are three words used for prophet. First, you saw already a few weeks ago, we translate it man of God. Oh no, you didn't see this one, sorry, this was the one you didn't see. Man of God is how Samuel is first described in that story, Ish Elohim in Hebrew. Man of God, what does that imply? Someone who was close enough to God, in relationship with God, close enough to hear what God was saying, and then come and pass it on to others, just as Moses had done up there on Mount Sinai. So here's the challenge. Is being close to God our priority, our motivation? What practical steps are we taking to spending time with God, to listening to God, to reading his word, to praying? Um, Is it something that's slipped? Is it something we need to sort of, this morning, say, Lord, I've I've not been so good at doing that recently. I've I've let my Bible reading go. I've, I've let my praying go. I've let my just going on a prayer walk go, just in case you've got something to say. Uh, We aren't going to hear God unless we spend time being with God. By the way, it doesn't mean that our being with God will be the moment he speaks to us. It's a bit like investing in the bank. You invest in the bank so when you need to do a withdrawal, there's money in it. And spending time with God's a bit like that. You know, you're not spending time with God so you think, right, Lord, I'm here. I know Joe McCobb really, 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 really needs a word for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an extra half hour this week, God, so that you can really speak to me and I can get his word for Joe. No. I might spend time with God that week and in the time that I spend with him, not hear anything. But I'll tell you what. For the moment then when you need to hear God, what it's done is tune the antenna. And you suddenly hear or see something and you think, ah, That sounds like my father. It's about investing so there's money in the bank for withdrawal day. Being a man of God, secondly, the second word that's used here is seer, roe. That was an old word in Hebrew. It came because they believed the prophets could see things, sometimes see things physically. So, Samuel actually could see where the donkeys had got to. Sometimes it's seeing spiritual issues. He could see that Saul was the one marked out by God to be the future king. 
But as Steve said in his very first talk, prophets see something that others aren't seeing at that moment. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a word comes, a picture comes, and you think, where did that come from? And that's when you trust that God is speaking and you step out and you share what you are seeing. Challenge to us this morning is, do we expect to see or do we expect to hear to use a different mode of receiving? Um, Do we expect it or do we expect that, well, the leaders will get prophetic words, I don't know about me. Do we expect that nudge of the Holy Spirit, not just in prophecy, but the nudge that says, why don't you go and visit so-and-so this week? And you think, where's that thought from? It's the curry from last night. Learn to listen to the nudges of the Holy Spirit and learn to expect to see things. Actually, when I go out on walks, I am constantly looking because that's one of the ways that God speaks to me prophetically in particular, things that I see. When I pray for people, I often look at them because I physically see things and out of what I see, God sparks off a word. So we need to be taking time to open our eyes, open our ears to see. And the third word that you saw is the Hebrew word for prophet, nabi or navi, for the good memory among you. You'll remember that Steve wrote it with a V, generally written with a B, but it's because the B is pronounced more like a V than a B, um, which is why you might see either spelling of it. What's it mean? Well, scholars are a bit divided. Some think it comes from a root word to call. The prophet is someone who's called and then who calls to others. But the other possibility and the one that Steve went with is that it comes from a word meaning to bubble up. Something bubbles up inside you and you don't know where it came from and you're going to step out and you're going to share it with others. Challenge. To us today, is are you expecting to bubble up? Okay, when you come here on a Sunday morning, what do you come for? Do you come because, well, you always come here on Sunday morning, and listen, that is a good practice, and I don't want you to get out of it, but is that all it is? Well, I come because I, I like to see my friends. Well, that's good too, because we're the body of Christ, and we're here to support and encourage one another. I come because... Jeremy Blake is just so good at leading worship, which he is. And isn't it great when you see young people up here leading worship, by the way? And uh, the youngsters up here this morning was absolutely fabulous to see and giving their gifts to, to God's service. Is it because we like the singing? Is it because we like the coffee? Is it because we've learned the secret of getting to the table and getting the biscuits first so there are none left for those of us who are at the end, let him who has ears to ear hear? <laughs> or is it because we think, Lord, I'm ready today to bubble up. Now the truth is, you may not bubble up every single week, but I wonder if you come with an expectation that 
You might bubble up today and in a prayer, say in groups like we did earlier, or even as you're talking with someone at the end, something comes and there's this bubbling up and you say, I'm going to share this with them. Can I pray with you? I think I've got a word for you. And if you come expecting to bubble up or to your small group expecting to bubble up. I wonder if you go to work expecting to bubble up. Because the thing about prophecy is, it's not just for Christians. Amen? Actually, there's far more in the Bible where prophets speak to unbelievers than believers. I wonder if you go to work expecting to bubble up sometimes. Or if you've just lost that. So, how do we become a Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, 1 Corinthians 13 prophet? Well, we set our heart. I'm becoming a man of God, woman of God, investing in that. I want to become a seer, saying, Lord, I want to start looking. I want to start seeing. Becoming someone who will bubble up and respond to that. So, let's sum up. What should be our motivation? In prophecy, we were thinking of this morning, but I'd widen that to anything that we do, any gift that we use for God. It should be first the glory of God and second the good of others. Last week, motivation took this guy a long way. I think if we will get the right motivation, every single one of us here can see ourselves going an awfully long way with the gifts that God's given to us, different though they be, and find God using us in ways that perhaps we never expected. So let's pray. Just want to widen this prayer time a little bit more than prophecy and just to think of other gifts that God has given to us. Whether we might think of those as sort of gifts of the Holy Spirit or whether we might think of them as more natural abilities. Some have got what seem to be more innate abilities. They're still gifts of God, remember. And I just felt I wanted to ask you to ask yourself, this morning, have you been using those gifts recently? I felt this week like God said that some of us had sometimes slipped into using them for us rather than for God and for others. I didn't set out to be like that, but it sort of drifted, slipped. using your gifts so that you got something out of it. And I felt this morning God wanted some of us just to say, Lord, I'm really sorry I've slipped down. I didn't feel there was an angry heart in God at all, but I did feel there was an appealing heart in God this morning. And that that if you just are aware that Lord, even the way practically I've been serving you, let alone prophesying, I've, I've slipped, I've ended up doing it because I want to be thought well of. I want to make something out of it. I want people to think good of me. And why don't you just repent of that 
this morning and say to God, that's enough, Lord. Thank you for stopping me this morning and reminding me of that and help me this week to being the man of God, the prophet, the seer like you want us to be. And maybe some of us this morning just need to focus on something different. Maybe we have let slip just our time with God. Just the time we spend reading his word or praying or in fellowship with others or, you know, even, even coming to worship with God's people on Sundays as, as the weather gets nice can be a pressure, can't it? It can be a challenge. I just wonder if some of us this morning need to say, Lord, I've been slipping really. I've not been investing in getting close to you alone and with others. And I'm sorry for that. And I, I want to make a new beginning there too. So I can get close to you and hear you both for myself and for others. So, Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. You are not a, an idol, like those idols that have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak. We thank you that we have a God who sees and hears and speaks, who is real. And, Lord, we long to be closer and closer to you so that we can catch hold of you And share something of the seeing, hearing, speaking God, not just with one another, but with those around us who don't know you yet. With those around who need to be like that man that we started with, who came in the meeting, heard something, touched something of the living God and said, blow me, God's here, what do I have to do? Lord, we long for more of that. Both here when we meet, In our homes, with our neighbours, in our place of work or study, we long for more of that. And Lord, we know that's going to happen. We need to get our priorities right. So Lord, just align us again this morning, we pray. That all that we do in prophecy and in everything else might be truly for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.